Good morning. How are you guys? I never know how to start, so I always start with a random, how are you? Which, you know, doesn't mean a whole lot, but I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> anyways, it, it, it really is an honor and a privilege for me to be able to share uh, the message this morning to preach. Um, and so I do want to tell you that First Samuel is one of those, First Samuel 3 is one of those stories that we often heard as children. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you know, we often heard about it as children. And so uh, there were usually some moralistic uh, things that we would draw from it. But this morning, I want to ask you, would you please have faith that the Lord is going to show us something new in his word? Keep in, ma- in mind that the word of God is alive and it is life-giving. And so even if you've heard the story a million times, like I have, <laughs> uh, have faith that the Lord will speak to us this morning. Um, if you haven't had the chance to listen to the last few messages uh, since Tim started a few weeks back, I highly recommend uh, you take the time to listen to them in the next few days. I am actually a little nervous about preaching after those amazing messages. I'm like, uh, those are, you know, big shoes to fill. Um, but here we are. Anyways, in the last two chapters that Tim covered recently, the author of the book of First Samuel, or the book of Samuel, both first and second, has introduced us to three main characters, if you will. You have Eli, the high priest. You have his two children, which we'll talk about them as the sons of Eli. And then you have Samuel, who is the third character. Um, up until now, the author has been painting a picture to show a stark contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel is a boy who, the, as the author tells us, has been ministering before the Lord and growing in the presence of the Lord. On the other hand, we have the sons of Eli who were priests. They were the priests in the temple. But even if they were the priests in the temple, they were far from God. The Bible calls them worthless men. Oof. Now, this comparison to me is reminiscing of Psalm 1, maybe because that's the last message I preached from. Um, but in Psalm 1, the psalmist contrasts the life of the righteous with the life of the wicked. And Samuel and the sons of Eli, to me, illustrate this contract perfect, this contrast perfectly. This morning, I want us to look at the story then of God's call of Samuel, who would later become the last judge of Israel and the first of many prophets to come. This is one of those stories, like I said, that most of us would remember from Sunday school. But I would ask you, please, as the Lord to give you faith today, that you would learn something new. As Tim mentioned the last couple of weeks, the author of 1 Samuel has made it clear that the people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes. If you want to say that in 2022 language, you could say that they were following their heart. And unlike what the world tells you, following their heart led them to utter chaos and dark times. God called Samuel during this time of spiritual famine. When Israel urgently needed God, God called Samuel. And this morning, I want us to see that God, God's answer to this time of darkness, to this time of lawlessness, to this time of debauchery and spiritual apathy was not a seven-step program. It was not a new political figure. It was not a piece of legislation. But God's answer to the time of darkness was and still is His revealed word. 
And so would you read with me the first three verses of of 1 Samuel chapter 3. And here, as we read those, I want us to notice that our covenant God shines his light even in the middle of darkness. Verses 1 through 3 say this. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you, Lord, eager to hear what you have to say. Eager, Father, to learn from your word. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, your children. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as we hear your word, that you would work in our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform our lives. And Lord, I pray that if there is anything that I say that does not uh, go according to the word of, 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 to your word, or that does not align to the truth of Scripture, Father, if I say anything that comes out of my own understanding and ignorance, Lord, I pray that that would fall down and be forgotten. Heavenly Father, make us people of the word that have discernment. Make us sensitive to the word of God and to the move of the Spirit in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Church, our covenant God shines his light even in the middle of darkness. In these first three verses, the author points out that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God was silent. And this is is illustrated later by by the way he describes Eli, the high priest. He says that Eli's eyesight had had began to grow dim, which has a twofold meaning. Literally, it means that Eli was getting old and his eyesight was failing him. He was deteriorating. But poetically, this has a second meaning, and it illustrates how the people of God had lost their vision. Based on what the author has told us so far, Samuel's ministry starts in a time of darkness. From the information that we gather from these first three chapters, we know that Samuel was called um, in in a season where he was surrounded by debauchery. We, we read in chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 12, that Hophni and Phinehas were living in sexual immorality. Can you imagine this? The, the, the priests of the temple were living in sexual immorality. It tells us that they were, sleeping with, they were sleeping with the women in the temple. But most importantly, as gross and, and wrong that that was, most importantly, the debauchery of Israel is illustrated by the fact that Hophni and Phinehas were scorning God's offering. They were treating God's offering with content, with contempt. And if you don't understand fully what that means, I highly recommend you go back and listen to last week's sermon. So Samuel was surrounded by debauchery. Samuel was surrounded by ignorance. We see that the ignorant that, that, that the Israelites were ignorant of the things of God. They were going to the temple, but the very priests were living in a way that didn't glorify the Lord. So the people of Israel were, were, were in ignorance, and yet they were also surrounded by religiosity. And I want you to notice this, that even if the priests were still offering sacrifices, their religiosity was void of faith. They were going through the motions. They were doing churchy things. 
They were making sacrifices, and the Bible tells us they were treating it with contempt. Let this be a warning to us, that religiosity, participating in the things of the church is meaningless unless our hearts are um, fully in the Lord, unless we fully trust and follow the Lord. Religiosity in itself is void of faith. So we can deduct then that Israel at the time was a mess. Israel was a mess. It was a time of darkness. And yet, God in his mercy was not done with his people. He was not done with Israel. The author tells us that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And this means two things also. It means that at the moment when the story unfolds, it was right before the morning because the lamp of the Lord still hadn't gone out, which means there's, there's a lamp uh, you know, in, in the temple and it, it was still on, basically. It wasn't morning time just yet. But it also tells us that the word of God had not ceased. That God's goodwill for his people was still present, even if unperceivable. Amen. And yet, at this very time of darkness, God chooses to bring forth his word to, through his prophet Samuel. And remind his people that his lamp has not yet gone out. Even at times when we cannot perceive him, God is still present with his children. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Israel deserve this kindness? Did they deserve God revealing himself to them? Absolutely not. Did they even want it? Probably not. Because what they already knew about God, what they already had from God, they were treating with contempt. But you see, our God is a covenant God. Amen. Starting in Genesis 3, God made a covenant of grace with Adam and Eve. And then he would reiterate his covenant with Noah and Abraham and Moses. In his covenant to Abraham, he promised that he would make his family a great nation. He told Abraham that he would give his family a land and that he will bless them. And most importantly, he will bless through this great nation he would bless the earth. He would bless all the nations of the earth. So in his mercy, God shines his light in the middle of the dark. Not because they deserved it, but because he is faithful. Not because they were good, but because he is good. Our God is faithful even when we are not. He is a covenant God, and as he told Moses, God is patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When his people were far from him, when his own nation had rebelled against God, God had mercy on them. And he raised a prophet to call them back to himself. Church, this is the loving God that we serve. A God that is patient. A God that is kind. A God that abounds in kindness towards his people. And I don't know who, want, who needs to hear this, but hear me out this morning. It doesn't matter where you find yourself this morning. It doesn't matter if you're surrounded by darkness. It doesn't matter if you're hurting. It doesn't matter even if you have plunged yourself into the very darkness in which you inhabit right now. You have a merciful Heavenly Father that is calling you back to Himself today. Do not ever believe the lie that you're too far gone for God to be kind and patient with you. He is calling you back today. 
And may it be, is it even, is it maybe possible that the fact that you're here today listening to these words, is it possible that God in his sovereignty is using this very moment to call you back? You who thinks this far. May he be calling you back this morning. I sure believe so. So in his mercy, like I said, God shines his light in the middle of the dark. If you haven't turned to him, would you turn to him today and give your life to him? Let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 4 through 10. And here I want you to see that our covenant God speaks to his children through his word. Verse 4 says this. It says, Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And, and, uh, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay, and lay down, and the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie, again, lie down again. At this point, Samuel was very confused. Uh, but verse 7 tells us this, Now Samuel, and I want you to pay attention to this specific verse. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him continues in verse 8 where it says and the Lord called Samuel again the third time and he arose and went to Eli and said here I am for you called me then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy therefore therefore Eli said to Samuel go lie down and if he calls you again you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel say, said, Speak, for your servant hears. I don't know about you, but I heard this story many times as a kid. And I always thought it was so cool that God would speak audibly to a child. That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> And as a kid, I was like, I want that. But this morning, I actually want us to readjust the way that we focus in this story. Because the focus is not that God spoke audibly to Samuel. I want us to notice that the most important point of this story is not, God, it's not how God spoke to Samuel, but what he said to him. And actually, the fact that he speaks this chapter marks the beginning of a new season, of a new era for the life of Israel. This event that we just read marked not only the beginning of a new life for Samuel, but also a new life for the people of God. Because you see, God's word came back to them. And a new life always begins upon hearing the word of God. Now I want us to notice two things from this story. First, I want us to talk about revelation. I want us to take a moment to think about how good our God is that he reveals himself to his people. As we read scripture, we find a pattern where God discloses himself to his people. This is what we may call, as the ladies in the Bible study will tell you, progressive revelation. Karen, I'll take my $5 later for the shout out. <laughs> you see, in Hebrews 1, chapter, I mean, yeah, Hebrews 1, 1 um, tells us this. It says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers, our prophets, to our fathers, the prophets, I'm sorry. And so as the story of the Bible progresses, God reveals himself to his people more fully. You and I hold in our hands the full revelation, the whole counsel of God. This book that we are holding on our laps this morning is the story of God. God revealed himself to his people. But at the time of Samuel, 
The people of Israel only had the writings of Moses and Joshua. And yet, God chose to disclose himself more fully through Samuel and the prophets that would follow him. But have you ever wondered why? Have you ever asked the question, why does God reveal himself to us? Is it to show off? Is it just to, sh- to tell us how cool he is? To brag about the fact that he is God and we are not? No. Have you ever thought about the fact that God reveals uh, himself to be known and to be loved by his children, by those that he loves? Herman Bavink um, puts it this way. He says, in his special revelation, God has compassion upon man who stray about and cannot find him. In it, God seeks man out and himself tells man who and what he is. He does not leave it to man to deduce or infer from a group of facts who God is. He himself tells man in so many words, here such am I. Here and such am I. This is what the Lord does through his word. He's disclosing himself to us. He's showing us who he is. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that we can only know God because he wants to be known? He didn't have to disclose himself. We have no means and actually, you know, we cannot figure out God. And our own, you know, if we're left on our own, we can never even find him. And yet God sent Samuel to the people of Israel, not because he needed them, but because he loved them and he wanted to be known by them. And in the same way, he wants to be known by us. So I want us to see here as well that, God's, that, that God calls his people through his word. In this story, God personally calls Samuel through his word. I want you to look at verse 7 again, and I want you to see what it says. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Isn't that crazy? Samuel didn't know him yet. But do you also see the connection between the God, I mean, the word of God being revealed to him and him coming to know God? Because Samuel could not know God without his personal revelation. Now, it's really interesting considering the fact that Samuel had lived in the temple, he had grown up in the temple, and he was actually ministering in the temple. It's also interesting because in chapter 2, verse 12, we read that the sons of Eli who uh, also did not know the Lord, and it's the same exact language. So the author is putting both Samuel and the sons of Eli in the same place. You see, Samuel and the sons of Eli were all raised in the temple. They were actually, uh, the sons of Eli were actually the priests, like I mentioned before. They were the supposed mediators between God and man, and yet... They did not know the Lord. Tim did this last week, and I want to do it again this morning. I want to talk to those of you that grew up in the church. Because it is clear from this passage that familiarity with the things of God doesn't always equate to knowing God. We can know about God and still not know God. So be careful. Watch your heart. Make sure you're not here consistently hearing the word of God and rejecting it and only hardening your heart. Thinking that somehow when you're older, it'll be easier to be a Christian. Thinking that somehow when you're older, you're just going to want to do this. 
What's the difference, though, between the sons of Eli and Samuel? The difference is the fact that the sons of Eli treated the offering with contempt. With contempt, as we heard from Tim last week. The offering was actually a substitute for their sin. God had provided a means of grace for the people of Israel to have a substitute. Through the offering, they made a sacrifice, and that was a substitute that would cover their sins. God provided a way, and the sons of Eli treated it with contempt. With contempt. They scorned it. They scorned the offering. They despised God's means of grace on their behalf. Samuel, on the other hand, he came to know the Lord because he received his word. Because he received his word, he believed it, and he was transformed by it. Now, I know the idea of hearing God's voice is amazing. It's something that I think we all desire, isn't it? I mean, how cool would it be to hear the voice of God? Imagine taking a shower, and then you hear, hello, you know, and it's the Lord. Like, I used to think that was cool. Now that I'm an adult, I'm like, that would be terrifying. Uh, It's exciting, but it's also terrifying. But the reality is that that's not really our experience, is it? I cannot tell you of even one time where I heard the Lord's voice. And in the background where I grew up, I often questioned, what is wrong with me that God won't speak to me? Because I would hear people from the pulpit telling me, well, God told me this. Well, all right, why why isn't he telling me anything? But you know what? This actually leads to the question, does God still speak? We might think, sure, if I heard God's voice like Samuel did, I would believe in him. Or I would get my act together. But the reality is that you and I have a fuller revelation than Samuel did. We have a better revelation, a fuller revelation than the sons of Eli did. We have God's word in our hands. And so let me ask you this morning, what is your attitude towards God's word? Are you like Samuel, ready to receive it, to treasure it, to believe it? Or are you more like the sons of Eli who despise it? And treat it with contempt. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. And here I want you to see that our covenant God brings salvation and judgment through his word. Verses 11 through 14 says this. It says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. God is telling Samuel, I'm about to tell you something terrifying. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned by, uh, for by sacrifice or offering forever. In these short four verses, we see an illustration of what Paul calls the kindness and the severity of God. We know from context that when God's word is revealed to Samuel, his life is transformed. From that day on, Samuel grows in the word of God, and the Lord uses him to call his people back to himself. But the other side of the coin was the judgment of Eli's family. Charles Spurgeon used to say that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others into their sins. 
And that illustration can be used to describe the effects of the word of God in the heart of a man. Because to some, the word of God brings salvation. But to those that reject it, it actually brings judgment. In the case of Samuel, he, his encounter with the word of God gave him a new life. And this shows then the kindness of our loving God. Through it, Samuel was able to usher in a new season for the people of God where they were able to hear his word again. And so it is with us as children of God. When we encounter the word of God, we are transformed by it. We, our minds are renewed by it. Our hearts are formed by it. The word is alive and life-given. By his word, our minds are renewed, like I said. It nourishes our hearts. It sustains us through the difficult times. And through it, we draw near to God. For those that rejected, the story is different. In the case of the sons of Eli, though, the word of God had the opposite effect. For them, the word of, uh, the word of God through Samuel brought about judgment. So you see, the same word brings to some joy and salvation and to others it brings dread and judgment kind of like the loss of my beloved cowboys last week our painful loss and humiliation brought so much joy to the rest of the country <clears throat> and so it is with the word of god what brings to some joy and salvation brings dread and judgment to others and this reminds us then of the severity that Paul talks about. The reality is that our modern sensibilities, to our modern sensibilities, um, the concept of judgment is kind of shocking, isn't it? We naturally buck against the idea of judgment. I think Jackie Hill Perry nails it in the head when she says this. She says, we are so used to the patience of God that we are more stunned by his judgments than we are by his forbearance. Paul warns us in the book of Romans not to presume on the kindness of God, which is meant to lead us to repentance. R.C. Sproul used to tell this story of what this actually means, to presume on the kindness of God. And, and R.C. Sproul, uh, Sproul was uh, a seminary professor, and so he tells a story of one time he had a paper that had to be written, and one of his students shows up that day and tells him, Professor Sproul, I am so sorry I wasn't able to write my paper. And Sproul tells him, don't worry about it. And he gives him the full grade. And he's like, may you learn what grace looks like. A year later, he's teaching the same class. And a student shows up and tells him, Professor Sproul, I am so sorry. I wasn't able to write my paper. And Sproul tells him, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, I just can't give you your grade. It's like he gives him a zero. And the student comes to him, What? I heard that last year a guy didn't write his paper and you gave him the full grade. And Sproul tells him, may you then learn not to presume on my kindness. And that is what it's like to presume on God's kindness. God is patient, forbearing, and loving. And yet Paul warns us. And, and, and I want to talk to those of you that are growing up in the church, I have grown up in the church. Let this be a lesson to us. Let us not presume on his kindness. Let us not assume that tomorrow we will, re we will repent. That whenever we are older and wiser, we will then get our act together. Because that is presuming on the grace and kindness of God. Church, here we see that God is about to bring judgment to the house of Eli. 
And we find it shocking, especially because the little we know about Eli isn't really that bad, is it? I mean, we read about Eli taking a little boy and raising him as his own. That doesn't sound terrible, right? Sure, he has some bad children, but he did try. I mean, in chapter 2, he asked them, hey, don't do that. (laughs) So he wasn't a terrible guy. If anything, he just looked a little slow, right? He did try to correct his children, but the children wouldn't listen. So what was the big deal with Eli? Why is there judgment coming to his house? The problem with Eli was precisely his passivity towards the things of God. Eli knew the word of God. He knew what was right and what was wrong, but he was passive in the face of sin. God specifically condemns Eli's passivity in the face of the sin of his children that were blaspheming him, and he did not restrain them. Dads, can I talk to you for a second? Hear me out, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to bring condemnation to anyone. But in the words of Monty Williams, I do not want to call you out, but I want to call you up to the task that God has entrusted you with. God has entrusted us men and and, and fathers with a family. Our wives and our children are our gift and the biggest evidence of of God's grace in our lives. Let's make sure we don't fall into the same trap that Adam and Israel and Eli and later David. And history tells us of a million other stories of men that were passive in leading their homes. Men that did not restrain their children. Men that were apathetic towards the things of God. As we grow into the men that God has called us to be, let us make sure we do not fall into passivity, into apathy. Dads, the way that you live your life has a direct impact on the lives of those you love. You are the spiritual thermostat of your home. How about today? We resolve as men here at Trinity to lead our families well. How about we resolve to seek to pursue Christ personally and to point our families in his direction? Now, I want you to hear this. I am not saying all these things from the high horse of personal experience. I'm not a good example of this. And I can tell you, this has been a temptation of mine to be passive. It has caused, especially early in our marriage, it it caused conflict in my home when I didn't step up to the plate. And I am often reminded that this is a temptation for me to be passive. Because I often work and work hard and then I get home and I just want to chill. But the Lord cares about how we lead our families. Ask Eli. The passivity of a man is a serious thing. And I don't want to bring out condemnation to any of you fathers, maybe whose children are not home anymore. Because there's grace for you. But for those of us that still have young families at home, let this be a reminder that the Lord cares about how we lead our families. Once again, I'm not saying that of personal experience. This is something I, 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 that the Lord is working in my heart as well. 
But that was a freebie, so let us get back to the text. I want you to notice in verse 14 that God says this, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Let me read that again, lest you missed it. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by, for, by sacrifice or for offering forever. Do you hear what God is saying? That the sin of the house of Eli will not be forgiven. He says that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for or sacrificed. What in the world does this mean? Is God maybe being a little too heavy-handed with Eli? Is he taking things a little too far? Where is his mercy? Where is the grace of God we so often talk about? Well, it's right there. Because God already made a provision for their sin. Because God already made a provision for their sin, and the sons of Eli scorned it rejected it, and treated it with contempt. That's where the grace of God was. That's where it is. Do you see what this is telling us? Those bulls and lambs that were sacrificed as substitutes were only a shadow of a more perfect sacrifice that would one day come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, God has already made a perfect sacrifice for your redemption. He has made a provision for your salvation. God sent his son to the cross and, he did, and, and his son did it with joy because he loves you. He went to the cross and in the cross he made a way for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ is the greater sacrifice let me ask you this morning, though, will you receive it? Or will you, like the sons of Eli, scorn it and despise it and reject it? Let us not, let us not take this lightly. Let us not presume in the kindness of God. If you're here today, this offers for you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you did five minutes ago. The offering is there. The provision, the provision has been made. This leads us to verses 15 through 18. And I want us to see here that our covenant God speaks his word through his children as well. Samuel, um, in verse 15, it says, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that the Lord told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now here I want us to look at the fact that God doesn't just speak to his children through his word, but he also speaks his word, he speaks his word through his children. Samuel received the word of God, and the expectation was that, the, that he would speak the word to others. In this case, Samuel had a pretty difficult message to deliver, to pass along, and yet he did it. 
Thankfully, Eli received, received the word humbly. This message, though harsh, seems to have changed Eli. In chapter 4, we will see soon that before his death, the Bible tells us that Eli's heart trembled for the ark of the Lord. And so it seems like the Lord did something through this message in the heart of Eli. But that's not always the case, is it? It's not always the case that someone takes it humbly. Like, yeah, thank you. You know what? You're right. Let me consider what you just shared. But church, one of the ways that we engage with the Word of God is by sharing it with others. I know it's difficult. I know it's not easy. It's awkward and uncomfortable. But the Word of God proclaimed is the best gift we can give others. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it no matter how people react. So growing up, I shared a room with my brother. I love my brother. He's my best friend growing up. He is kind. But let me tell you something about my brother. He does not like being woken up. He was a cranky man every time I woke him up. And I knew this. I knew that if I wanted to make him mad, all I had to do was just to wake him up. And so as the older brother that I am, I made it my mission to wake him up all the time. Just to make him mad. Because that's what older brothers do. One day, I woke him up by just putting a little drop of water in his ear. Um... It was scary, man, but, <clears throat> but anyways, that's what I do as a brother. Uh, now imagine this. I know my brother hates being woken up, right? So the loving, kind thing for me to do is to not wake him up. Now I know that. But imagine this. Imagine that I find myself one day at home, and I know my brother's taking a nap. But I see that in the first floor, right below his room, there's a fire, and it's becoming pretty obvious that the house is going to soon be engulfed in flames and that we need to get out. Let me ask you a question. What's the kind thing for me to do with my brother? Should I respect the desire to not be woken up? Is the loving, kind thing for me to do not to inconvenience him during this time as he rests? Or is it to tell him, there's a fire coming? <laughs> you know what? I, will wake him up. Well, I can wake him up and initially he's going to be mad. But the second he realizes that I was trying to save his life, things are going to be different. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it would be evil on my part not to wake him up just to avoid a confrontation. I know that even if, he might, if I might upset him, it is the loving thing for me to do because ultimately I'm trying to save his life. In the same way, church, the world needs to hear the word of God. And how will they hear it if we are not the ones to speak it? The loving thing is not to not inconvenience people with our words. The loving thing is to speak truth and to do so in love, which is the part sometimes we miss. God doesn't only speak to his children through his word, but he also speaks his word through his children. Which leads us to the last point. Verses 19 and 20. And I think these two verses are often forgotten. But I want us to see that our covenant God transforms his children through his word. Verse 19 says this. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So as we get to the end of this chapter, I want us to pay attention to these two verses. I want us to talk about the fact that God's revelation demands a response. God disclosed himself to us, not for the sake of information, 
but for the sake of transformation. Or as Bavink again puts it, God gives himself to his people in order that his people should give themselves to him. You see, God's revelation didn't leave Samuel unchanged. We see in Isaiah, he says this in Isaiah 55, 11, he says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall, that which I'll purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Did you hear that? God's word will not return empty, but it will accomplish the purpose of God. As we spend time in the word, as we marinate in his word, as we read it and spend time in it, we will be transformed by it. The word of God informs us, but it also transforms us, and ultimately it forms our hearts and our characters church let us be a people of the word let us be people that are molded and formed not by the things of this world but by the word of god let it not be um the news that forms the way that you see the world let it not be other books though i love books (laughs) but let it not be other books let it not be tv let it not be social media let it be the word of god That helps you see the world as you ought to. As I draw to a close, I want us to see, I I, want to borrow a snippet of a sermon that actually I heard in a song by Beautiful Eulogy. They they play this little snippet that I want to quote to you this morning. It says this, it says, Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. It'll become a little more clear. (laughs) You expand your understanding of the object of your faith, and faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if you indeed are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of his promises. When Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does this happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. Read Jesus. The same powerful word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. Church, let us read Jesus. Let us read his word. Let us delight in it. Let us spend time in it. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to form us through the reading of his word. When I call the worship team, as I close, dear church, the, the word of God came to Samuel and it transformed his life. As I mentioned at the beginning, we often wonder why God doesn't speak to us audibly as he did to Samuel. But if I had to guess, I would say that Samuel would be jealous of the revelation that you and I have. Because you see, though we don't really hear his voice audibly these days, we have a fuller revelation and knowledge of who he truly is. This side of the cross, and with a full canon of scripture on our laps, we have a fuller vision of God and how much he loves us. This morning, you have heard the word of God. And as I said earlier, the, God, the word of God will bring salvation or judgment. The word of God demands a response. 
from it, we know that Christ has already made a provision for your salvation at the cross. So let me ask you again this morning, how will you respond to that offer? How will you treat that offering? Will you, like Samuel, say, here I am, Lord, and receive it and treasure it and have your life transformed by it? Or will you, like the sons of Eli, reject it and scorn it, scorn God's provision for your redemption? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for the provision that you have made for our salvation through your son, Jesus, and the cross. We thank you that the call goes out to everyone, Lord. I pray that it would be you that quickens the heart of those that don't yet know you, Father, to respond to your word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your revelation. Thank you that you have chosen to disclose yourself to your children. Help us treasure it, Lord. Help us spend time in it. Help us be people of your word. And help us not only receive your word, but also help us, Lord, speak your word to others. In the name of your son, Jesus, we thank you this morning. Amen.